Uh, who am I talking to? Hi, uh, I'm Ren Romero, uh, a bird. I use they, them pronouns. Uh, and I write poems sometimes, often. Yeah, and I, I came across your work through um, uh, Jamie Barut's work, um, through her booklet series. Um, how, how'd you uh, meet Jamie? Mm-hmm. Um, Jamie, shouts out Jamie, just in all respects. Like, please. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, anyone listening to this, send Jamie coin. JamieBarrett.com, find the details. Um, Jamie, okay, uh, I don't remember exactly when or how I encountered the Jamie Barrett's work or the Trans Writers series. Um, I, like, truly do not recall. Definitely through Twitter. Um, definitely through being adjacent to other, like, trans writers. I think what's most likely is that I had seen, um, probably through, oh my god, which of the sonics would that would have been? I have it in front of me somewhere. Um, I believe it was Venus Selenite had a poem in the Trans Writers Anthology, like the first issue of that. And so I think I had seen a reposting of that and followed Jamie there. And then this is what did it. Um, I had seen, this would have been in like March or April. Uh, I had seen that Jamie was putting out a call for more authors. Um, and so I just like retweeted that tweet. I'm um, just like trying to push of like, Oh, who might be interested? Like, um, and then Jamie had seen that I had written, um, a zine, um, death cults. Um, and just kind of clocked that I was a writer. Um, and then asked if I'd be interested in writing anything for it. Um, we had several conversations. Um, one thing led to another. And then a few months later, um, Jamie, very generously published when phoenix flooded um and paid me for it on time which is like unprecedented in the arts <laughs> yeah, that's awesome that's awesome what were your like so you you published um the death cult um i think on itch.io and like so what's your experience been like in publishing up to up to now uh-huh um so with death cult that existed as that has existed in several forms for like two years now um just to like prime the audience death cult is like a 13-ish page zine like multicolor that i put together literally in like um google docs just to see like what i could do with a word processor um, i had a lot of time on my hands i was very just a very obsessive stage of my life so i put that together for about a year that kind of only existed in like my most obscure social media feeds is just like this thing that i had but didn't really show many people um later i linked up with um some folk like friends of friends of friends basically from the new school who were putting together a thesis project um they were doing uh and what did they call it um silencio in sentares or sentares in silencio i forget the order of that um but it's just like an exhibition of like uh, what they framed is like radical works by Latina artists. Um, so I had been put on by a friend of a friend. I sent them this zine that I had made that didn't really exist in like a physical form yet. Like, how should we do this? I'm like, I'll send you a box of zines. It can't be that hard. Um, and so I learned over the course of about a day with a, a printer and a stapler that it's actually kind of hard to like make zines. Like, not that hard though. It was a very rewarding process. So I stapled like 50 copies of them together and mailed them out. Um, and they displayed them in this gallery. And then Death Cult existed again in kind of just my, uh, like a box, basically, in my room for a while. And then eventually I was like, wait, I actually, like, can't distribute this. Um, 
And so the path that I chose to distribute it as a PDF was itch.io, um, which is a platform that mostly does like indie games, um, but also has a very particular overlap with like games and also um, like tabletop and narrative games. And so there's a lot of people who are like writing these very poetic, these very um, explicitly literary games and like literal books that they'll publish on there. And they just give, like, it's pretty straightforward. It only took me maybe an hour spread over two days to like set up all the account information and get it going. Um, the cut that they take is actually very small. They have a good amount of payment options. Um, so, so far I've had very positive experiences using itch.io to like distribute things digitally. I know Gumroad is something a lot of people use, but I don't have much experience with that. Otherwise, yeah, like self-publishing, like zines like that, um, trying to distribute shit on like Tumblr, Twitter, social media platforms. Um, in terms of like working with like larger publishers, um, had not happened, although around the same time as I was like finishing When Phoenix Flooded, um, I did get uh, a poem I'm placed in like a, I don't get too specific, but in like a forthcoming anthology from one of the larger publishers, which was just a trip for me. Because like, one, like, yeah, it was like a big deal, but two, I didn't realize it wasn't going to pay. So that was like mad funny where it's like, okay. So like this other like broke artist who's literally doing this like themselves can pay up front, like be mad transparent, but like people working with like these publishing companies on like these anthologies that are going to be placed in like every bookstore I'm ever going to see cannot pay it down or will not. Oh, hell yeah. That's cool. Congrats. Um, yeah, like, um, with, uh, itch, like itch.io, it's, um, it's like a video game, you know, there's a lot of video games and interactive fiction on there. Like you were saying, like, are you in the um, death cult itself is like, um, takes from like the text-based adventure thing. So like, you know, are you, are you a gamer? <laughs> uh, um, yes. Uh, unfortunately the answer to that very much so is yes. Um, not even unfortunately, but like, yeah, death cult is like very, it does pull from like choose your own adventure and like the most like not even literal way like it ends most of the pages with some sort of a question but i like that there was that i don't know the sense that maybe you should interact or be thinking about interaction and also just like what are the visual cues that tell you how to interact with something like what do you look at and it's like ah this thing like speaks to me versus like i am supposed to be dictating to this thing like it's I found that fun to play with. Um, so with Death Cult, it came out looking like, um, I mean, very much so on my mind at the time I made it was Undertale. I had just finished Undertale, which was like um, this indie RPG created by Toby Fox, um, who is, I think, the like creator of, like, God, what is that, Homestuck, actually? Um, which is just a funny lineage, I guess, to be in. Um, but yeah, video games and I, we have, um, and I, like, I know video games. Um, I have played a lot of video games in my time. I find them enjoyable. I like the escapism aspect of it, and I love science fiction. Oh yeah, same for me. Like, what 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 games do you play? What do you what are your like what are your interests there? Are you? In, oh, mm -hmm. I should ask too. Are you into interactive fiction at all? Um, interactive fiction. That's like uh, like choose your own adventure and like the milieu that's like expanded from that. Yeah, yeah. I just figured I'd ask since uh, you took on that format a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely read a lot of interactive fiction um especially when i was a kid like especially in like 
late grade school and middle school, like a lot. So it's just fun, you know, like there are these like Goosebumps books, the Choose Your Own Adventure books, all of them. And they tended to have this like gruesomeness, actually, that a lot of other fiction, especially for young people, does not have of like, oh, we're in this cave. And then it's like suddenly you're like kidnapped and like fighting for your life. It's like, what is this? Also, the fact that it's like literary works that use the second person, like using you statements um, is like for me, that was like such a mind fuck of like wait there's first person i and the third person they and the second person you and you can use that in a narrative um so that was always sick um so narrative fiction was a big part of my life for a while just like anything i could find i would like hang on to for dear life i was like a troublemaker kid for the life of me so i was always in some sort of detention suspension grounding whatever so like Anytime I could have a book in my pocket that I could spend a lot of time with, very helpful. Um, and plus, like, similar to, I don't know, yeah, a lot of that feeds into, like, the video games that I've enjoyed, um, which for me has been very much so, like, uh, like the Fallout milieu of just, like, Fallout, Fallout 2, 3, 4, like, 4 sucks, but um, I've really enjoyed, like, ones that allow a character exploration which like getting older and a little less um i don't know invested in like the power fantasy aspect of it which is like i find very troubling with a lot of video games where it's like oh this is actually just like conditioning its audience to like think violence is cool and productive and like a way to advance in the world and a way to like reinforce uh, a set of beliefs um which is like kind of what it is it's just like really dark the way that that gets applied to like literal children um but like in games where there's like a chance to do something a little more creative or a little more explorational just to be like explore relationships or things like that i'm like this is dope um but that's a newer experience right now um i am very invested in uh, a recent release called the outer worlds which is just like very science fiction, very spacey, very like space opera. Like you're the captain did of the you, ship. Did you say um, Outer Worlds or Rim World? I missed it. Um, Outer Worlds. Um, although I have heard of Rim World, which is like I guess kind of similar. Um, of like, yeah, they're both kind of like, what if capitalism outlived the Earth? That is the fire alarm for my building, but it's okay. <laughs> um, that's just every time we cook, it goes off. Well, I, I guess like I now you know more. you're cooking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to step away just to like fan that for a couple minutes. I'm very sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It doesn't matter. It's a uh, podcasting verite. Is that? I'm not a film person. Is that the, is that the right? It works out because I have to get my pizza out of the oven. Um, I'm back. Was that about pizza? Oh, yeah. I said it works out because I was just getting my pizza out of the oven. Mm, perfect timing. Yeah, you were just talking about um, Outer World? Yeah, is Outer it? Worlds. Um, I mean... Wow, <laughs> I'm back. Oh um, uh, yeah, did yeah. What was I talking about? Uh, outer uh, outer. So yeah, the outer worlds. Um, I've been enjoying just in the escapist sense of like video games. Very engaging, great ways for me at least to like detach. But I mean, the the narrative, the writing, and concept is, I guess, pretty interesting to me. Just in the sense of like, it tries to engage as best as it can of like actually what if capitalism was able to leave earth and what if it was able to establish colonies and like the most literal sense of like the purpose of a colony is to 
produce commodities for the export to like core or semi-core areas like um so in that sense of just like exploring like what are the possibilities within that like what are the different roles how do we react to like the collapse of a colonial system in the sense of like it being no longer capable of sustaining life like how do you approach that do you reform uh, a given like sector of it do you try to demolish the whole thing do you establish new structures do you go just like the complete like fascist control route of just like eliminate like all possibility um i don't know i think that as far as like i mean it's not perfect or whatever but it definitely engages with those ideas of like oh actually like there are structural problems within capitalism beyond just like the moral problems, which are, I think, a little easier to explore right now. Um, I have I found it quite creative in that regard, which is, like, honestly fun, because most video games are very, very um, flat, or if not even, like, if we're lucky, often they're apolitical, but much more often they're, like, explicitly reactionary or explicitly, like, tools of, like, United States propaganda. Yeah, oftentimes per- pretending to be apolitical, sometimes like um, being propaganda but pretending to be apolitical. Um, yeah, and it's—I mean—you find that with science fiction a lot. Is, yeah, I was about to ask you, uh, what kind of science fiction do you like? Um, yeah, it's been—I guess—nice getting back into it recently. I'm trying to think of what I have engaged with the science fiction recently that has like taken me. Steven Universe, honestly. Like beyond above, I'm almost a, it's almost a cliche to like stand Steven Universe at this point, but I do I adore that show. Um, but I was like for me, my like origin points in science fiction were um, Star Wars, which is like a very common point for like USians, um, which is just like it is what it is, yo. Star Wars, it's like the most. It's I can't even explain to like some people even like of like how to capture just how tied that is to like cold war ideas and to cold war attitudes um is like wild just how deeply coded that can be but there was like star wars was a big one for me um god like the most grim dark variety of like crypto fascist science fiction of like the warhammer 40,000 universe huge for me as a kid just there were so many of these books and they were so long and covered so much like in the scheme of things like frivolous stuff but it seemed like different and like grim and dark um literally the books would start with like the words in the grim dark future of the 41st which is like the most cynical possible approach to like what is the future trajectory of like imperialism as like a technology of human expansion um but i think i enjoyed that like i think i enjoyed the aspect where it was really bleak and actually violent and not very moral about it um before i was able to start articulating those ideas for myself in like a similar vein um i was really weirdly for a while obsessed with um what is that robert heinlein um but not stranger in a strange land starship troopers i read starship troopers like a dozen times it's back like two years and very quickly after that time, I was like, wait, that is like the most fascistic book that has maybe been written in that time period. Why was I so obsessed with that? I still can't quite put my finger on why I found it so satisfying, except maybe that I like 
come from a family um, in which like military service is very common, very normal, very much so like the only profession. Um, so maybe I just found it very normal in that regard of like, yeah, society should be organized around like these lines of like military service. And then like I blinked and was like, that's not okay. Um, I think for me in terms of like evolving my thinking on that, like within the genre of science fiction was, um, I'm going to look this up real quick who the author was, um, but a book called The Forever War, um, Forever yeah, War by Joe Haldeman. That sounds about right. It was published in 1974. Wow. Um, I have no idea how I came to like have this book in my hand, but basically, um, this is not related to poetry at all. Shouts out to all my um, poets in the audience. But like, uh, in the scheme of that book, it's just like, what if we, again, same idea of like, humanity goes to conquer the stars. Like, how long does it take to go out and like do that? And so it follows like one individual, like, departs for this war in, let's say, the year like 2030. I forget what it actually is. Um, and then by the time they return to Earth, it's like, hundreds of years later everyone they know is dead there's nothing they can really do except like go out and fight in the next campaign and like through a successive process of this it's like oh the reasons for any of this have like long since faded out of view this is just a habit um in a way that i don't know i found beautiful i'm pretty sure it was like at the time written as a critique of like the way the united states was like starting to engage in these like non-wars so like these police action wars um like we saw in Korea and Vietnam and later. Now it's just completely global, um, constant. Yeah, science fiction, yo. That's, that's a short yeah, history no, of my big, life with science fiction. Uh, that's cool. It's, it's, it's kind of, well, A, I'm a big fan of um, science fiction too, like in general. And also I was just reading, um, well, listening to the audiobook of uh, Roberto Bolaño's The Spirit of Science Fiction Today. And like he really talks a lot about um, one of the, like the reason he's very interested in science fiction is like the way in which um, like both leftists and fascists are very interested in science fiction. So like, yeah, I don't know. It's just <laughs> it's something I'm really interested in too, just how 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 that works out. But uh, like with your poetry too, I wanted I guess to make the connection. Like you often like write about the future in your poems in a way that um, like. You know, like right now, there's a lot of, I'd say, like kind of speculative poetry being written. And like, are you trying to bring that kind of sci-fi futuristic dynamic to poetry at all? Um, I would say, honestly, explicitly, yes. Like, I think that one, I would, yeah, the spirit of science fiction, that's something, it's like a long essay, right? Like a book length essay. It's like, a, it's like a, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard. It's one of those ones where, well, all his books are kind of. Slaps together. Because right? he also yeah. wrote a book called 2666, right? Yeah, yeah. That one's that one's like really five novels that are interlinked, kind of, and then one of them is isn't even a novel. But um Spirit of Science Fiction, it's a mix of like an interview with the author in present day and then flash and then short stories of him as like a 17-year-old in Mexico City, and then also the letters he wrote as a 17-year-old in Mexico City to various famous uh, sci-fi writers like Ursula Le Guin and James Triptree, Triptree Jr. and whatnot. Um, this guy was 17 reading Ursula Le Guin? This guy... No wonder, yo. Yeah, he's... Yeah, yeah but he... There's a lot to like about Roberto Bolaño, for sure. That sounds fascinating, because... 
Yeah, there's something about science fiction and like what is possible to imagine about the future that I guess is really engaging. So I'm trying to think of how long I've like really been trying to like do that actively. Um, I guess in a sense, that's been part of my like consciousness for a while of just like making a demand of the near future. Um, definitely, um, Death Cult and Wind Phoenix Flooded probably have a much stronger sci-fi element than a lot of my other writing. Um, Death Cult, just to come back to it, is like, I guess talk about what it actually is, is like, it's the most like obtuse thing I've ever written. I'm gonna be honest. Like one of my friends, when I showed it to them, said, "Like you have completely given up on accessibility," um, which ties to an earlier conversation I think on this podcast about like difficult poetry and what that is. Um, so for like this, it's like, what if like there really was like full like whatever global revolution like tomorrow? Um, what would that process be like, and how would you see that? So I was like, what if you saw that in like the most digital form? Um, so it's like mostly meant to resemble like tweets and chat logs and other things of that nature. So in a way they're like concrete poems or found poems, um, that just try to fit into like this digital form. And there's something about like, for me that like acknowledging that I'm working in a digital medium kind of requires me to acknowledge like what digitality is, which is so hard for me to wrap my head around um and feels very science fictional and like future shock to me um and then related um there's some poems in wind phoenix flooded that are that like kind of border on science fiction there's like one where i talk about like oh what is that um it's one of the burning high ones where basically i'm talking about like spaceships um and like the possibility of like billionaires leaving earth because like they finally like exhausted this whole planet of all its resources and how i could not leave because as somebody explained to me very um ungenerously like if you have ever smoked a menthol cigarette um the menthol makes you earthbound like you cannot join any sort of space program because in the process of like going through the atmosphere the menthol like that is trapped in your lungs forever will like expand and like create like shrapnel effect in your lungs i'm like damn i can't even leave this planet if i wanted to um so that was a weird moment of like the limitation of possibilities based on the most arbitrary thing which is that for a while i really love camel crushes i think they're a fantastic no they're terrible don't smoke smoking's don't do it yeah um, okay <laughs> yeah i don't know like that's no, go, yeah, go that's on you're saying you're gonna say about science fiction um yeah science fiction it's interesting to me the relationship between, I guess, this word futurism and like how it is used right now, um, where like currently it's used um, almost without context, um, or else it's used in the context of Afrofusion or Afrofuturism or like variations on that, like indigenous futurism, um, which are like completely valid. I love a lot of writers who are like working in these like forms explicitly. I think it's interesting how we've gotten from like futurism as like this artistic movement that was like very explicitly like proto-fascist in whatever like 19 teens Europe um, that then has somehow like evolved into this idea of like as long as we're talking about the future there is futurism which is just interesting because for a while I definitely 
was working in a way where I was like trying to explicitly maybe appropriate futurism before I was like critical of it. Um, I was just like, the world is slow. We go faster. Like it's the accelerationist idea maybe of like, if we just intensify all the contradictions, just like push every form to its limit, just like break it all down. Maybe something new will come about. Um, and uh i mean it's like rewarding to do viscerally satisfying um knowing what i know now about the actual like people who have come up with those ideas and the relationship of those ideas to fascism um quite troubling actually and so in a way i think a lot of my work as like an individual um as like a scholar air quotes in the most like tangential ways like wait like what is fascism how is it coded how does it appear to us in ways that are not obvious because most of the ways are not obvious yeah that's yeah and i well that's also something i think um uh Bologna really gets at i was talking about that with um cam cassie on twitter recently just want to <laughs> shout out but uh yeah it is like Bologna is one of those writers who really does understand, I guess, where contemporary modern fascism comes from and really tries to, I guess, lay bare where, where it comes from. And, you know, he, you know, he, like, he was interested in, I <laughs> tweeted about this today. He's really, he was someone who's really interested in like, um, gaming culture at the time it was board games, but he was really interested in that. And as a, I guess, a way of exploring what, how fascism had take shape nowadays, and in a lot of ways, he was very right, because like we were talking about earlier, so much of fascism today comes out of video games. Ah, yeah, I mean, that's, that's wild. The idea of Roberto Bolaño thinking about, like, damn, what are, like, board games? What are, what are those gamers like? Because that's, that's the thing, though. It's, like, very true in that, like, so... It's, it's wild. He was right about it. Dead on. And a lot of the times, like, people who are keeping up with the developments and, like, that aspect of subculture were, like, dead on like so like this current wave or whatever like so much of it and a lot of people will point to like i think rightly so gamergate as like an inflection point of like an evolution of a certain strategy of organizing on the right um and a lot of people i don't know and like the mainstream or just outside of like gamer subcultural spaces might not even know about gamergate um or it could bear a refresher so i guess um like what was your encounter if anything with like that cultural moment well at the time i was on i was on tumblr and twitter so i saw it there i was also still playing um counter-strike at the time so i remember you know arguing with gamergate teens about counter-strike about um gamergate on counter-strike voice chat and like the dynamic there is um the dynamic there that was right after um or it was probably two years after Counter-Strike Global Offensive got released. I think I might have talked about this on my episode with um, Johan the Kid on Twitter, but uh, basically in Counter-Strike in Counter Global Offensive, they introduced like an ELO ranking system. So you, get, you got penalized if you left a game, even if your teammates were you know, just shouting N-word at you. So mm -hmm. um, for me, that's kind of the dynamic that Gamergate and contemporary politics really revolves around the fact that there's just these people you, we we can't get rid of them and if we leave we're penalized for it basically yeah i mean yeah it's like a really specific like 
strategy of harassment that like like you said i think twitter really was like <clears throat> sharp about it um yeah, like for me a lot of my engagement was watching it play out in the form of one there was a lot of engagement with journalists um so like a lot of women specifically were being fired related to like being involved with sex work on the side of like game development jobs um women were being harassed off of platforms for unrelated reasons and a lot of like trans women specifically were getting the brunt of this so like one creator um nora blake i think still at nora blake on twitter um who so nora blake is like honestly part of i guess my political development in that i had been sort of like uh like f lefty fringe for a long time like trying to think 2011 was like uh the occupy movement that was like a very exciting moment for a lot of people who are new to like what is anarchist politics and then it very quickly turned into like oh actually this is also the cia um but not entirely but that was like a quick moment of like awakening and then like cynicism following so like left politics were on my radar and then probably 20 14 or 2015 or so i got wise to nora blake's work and nora blake um her most famous work was the new york times bot which would like tweet fake new york times headlines of like uh i don't know the president says x about millennials because like why um i can't even think of the specifics it was just so funny from the repetition of it of seeing like actually yeah okay this institution is so predictable in the way it like generates these critiques and actually serves the right. Um, and so Nora Blake created a series of these like automated tweet generators that were just like satirizing contemporary culture um, and very quickly attracted one, uh, a following and two, a lot of hate because as you may know, people on the internet tend to be quite rude to trans women en masse. Um, and that was kind of this first wave of like, really not even i guess not the first wave but it was a wave of really intense targeted harassment by like coordinated hate groups using the internet where suddenly not even suddenly like gradually it came to be obvious that like if you have enough people harass like shouting the same slur long enough you can chase somebody off of a platform and because there is so much overlap between the people who like program the actual architecture of these websites like twitter like facebook and like because of the overlap between the people who are programming designing and moderating these platforms they are very similar to the people who are organizing these hate groups these you know various runoffs of uh the clan the daily stormer etc um because of that it was really easy for them to cross pollinate and to take advantage of the so-called like terms of service to really just like no platform a lot of even the most like mildly left people on the internet like especially if they were women especially if they were trans just like got forced very much so underground um and somehow the narrative that emerged from that was a narrative of like civil discourse to where like mainstream liberals were just completely not aware of what was actually developing so like when the 2016 election cycle started there was really not like for people who had an awareness of what that felt like for whatever reason knew what the internet harassment machine was capable of 
I think it was actually always pretty obvious that Donald Trump was going to win that election just off of like the way the mechanics of it are set up. For like mainstream liberals who are pretty content to like just profit off of the like the ways that it was, I think it came as a shock that like actually the New York Times was no longer as powerful of a propaganda machine as like Reddit. But if you had been paying attention to Reddit since at least like since it had been a thing, it was like clearly this like den of just like awful, horrible things. So like earlier when you asked me like, oh, are you a gamer? I was like, uh, like reluctantly because honestly, like in the wake of all of that, it was like, why would I be a part of like, why would I self-identify as this subculture that is so explicitly fascist? And I really had to like rethink a lot about what I understood as like, the dynamics of culture because it's like oh now we're gamers we're like the fringe we're like outcasts from society and it's like how dare you weaponize that narrative um i don't even know what i was talking about but of like politics and gamers and like damn oh yeah i was just gonna well first off i wanted to say like a lot of people focus on like 4chan and i think you're right like reddit reddit really is the start of a lot of this stuff and people miss that by focusing so much on 4chan i think um and like yeah and like the yes and exactly and also like the structure like of gamers as outcasts first off like that's totally like a construction of the games industry that's like how they're marketing like that's literally people taking on the marketing um campaigns of the gaming industry as like an identity and of course like also the idea that gamers are outcasts like been marginalized by society and like they're they're under attack constantly by mainstream society that's like the same mentality that you know like a white nationalist would have the white nationalist believes that you know whiteness is under attack and it's yeah. it's, it's very it's very clear that that's how that like, that could be mobilized like that it's just like with resp- oh sorry <laughs> what were you saying no, i'm just like echoing i guess of like i hear you yeah yeah and i was just gonna add too like with um you know the people like for instance jack on twitter if you read the book hatching twitter like you know at jack on twitter the, the well one of the co-founders you know he he you know there's a there's a long story in there about him harassing one of the of his female co-workers there's you know his he it's called following because he wanted it to be this sort of platform where you could just like you know follow people to like parties or whatever and what? yeah for real for real and <laughs> And, um, you know, and also I just want to say, too, like, even before Gamergate, there were multiple organized, like, harassment campaigns originating on 4chan and Reddit, you know, targeting black women, targeting, you know, trans women. And, you know, like, one of the, you know, like, the famous one that has gotten written about recently is um, hashtag your slip is showing. But, you know, like, you're right. Like, these these were going on for so long. Oh, my God. That, like, awakened a part of my brain, you know, the culture wars. (laughs) are real uh yeah i mean like the influence of reddit is still i mean you mentioned it as like being something that's maybe over talked about i just think it's not being talked about like in the right ways yet like i don't know just speaking as somebody who is like i'm just gonna say like 4chan is over talked about like compared to reddit oh i might have gotten that backwards like yes yeah reddit is like reddit is so mainstream now that's the thing is like reddit is like easy to just be like oh that's just reddit it's like no reddit was like horrifying if you were following what that type of like message board was because it really was an offshoot of 4chan at a time when it was like 
God. I mean, I feel like we have to talk about 4chan, though, if we're going to talk about it being over-talked about. Um, oh, for sure. Just because, so for myself, I was, I was very on 4chan. Um, like, for a certain period of time, like, what, during... Like, if you don't mind, like, what time? Yeah, that would have been, God, when I was, like, literally, like, a preteen. Um, so that would have been... Jesus, I need to like actually look at like a calendar to try and visualize these years. So it's 2019 currently, uh, ten years ago basically. So like 2009 ish, um, like around Obama's first election would have been when I was like peak on Twitter or for on 4chan because I don't know I was in middle school at that time. I'm not that old. I don't you know. I'm old now. I guess in the scheme of things, but I'm not that old. But at the time I was in like middle school. Um, it was like around the Obama election first. And it was just like the edgiest place. Like I was mostly interested in, no, I was interested in all kinds of weirdness on there. But like, that was, I mean, whatever, being like 12 or whatever, I had no capacity really to process. I was like, okay, this is a lot of like racism, and like horrible shit. Um, and I think I was like imagining that I was filtering out more of it than I was. Like more of it was normalizing in my head than I was realizing. And after a certain point, I was like, actually horrified at like what it was and what i was like looking at like around the times they started like trying to moderate certain boards and so they introduced like a new board basically dedicated to like basically like white nationalist rhetoric discussion i forget what it was like slash politically incorrect or something like that um i was like wait what what are y'all doing um and then i think around a similar point there was like the split off to create 8chan um which is now known in some circles as full chan while 4chan is like half chan um and i was like what is this and then i kind of grew up and got a little off those platforms my narrative but like later on it was like reading reports where it was like like i mean i was reading today in the bookshop i saw like this report by somebody who worked for cambridge analytica talking about how they were like like what they were doing with Cambridge Analytica studying Twitter and targeted advertising to influence elections and da 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 and I'm like this is like small fry shit compared to like certain reports about like what was happening with 4chan as like an air quotes informant network as like a spot where God ah 4chan is so horrifying just the number of like the way you can actually traffic white nationalism through that website or through 8chan or through Reddit, through Twitter now. Ah, wow. It's mad strategies. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think, um, people like I've, I've heard that like, uh, like for instance, Stormfront at some point realized that this probably was around like 2010 ish that, that like fortune was a good place to, you know, propagandize with, uh, white nationalism essentially. Yeah, um, Stormfront definitely had a presence on there. I wasn't really sure where to, like, find that or see that until, like, later. Um, I think, no, I mean, it was actually pretty obvious, I guess. There were always, like, these thinly veiled references to, like, Stormfront. Um, and then later on, kind of a little further down the line, like, as this current wave of so-called, like, lone wolf shootings really started to pick up, it really picked up in the popular consciousness again of, like, what is this 4chan website that people are using and what is the relationship? And like, on the one hand, like the narrative that got pushed was that like, oh, look at all these like lonely, alienated young men, you know, these like incel gamers who were just like having these breakdowns, committing violence. But that was not at all what was happening. 
Yeah, not to not to interrupt, but like some of like some of the narratives too were just like, oh man, these if only there was enough mental health for these poor like mentally ill white men. And you know, I'm also, I'm saying that in air quotes because yeah. I, don't, I don't believe that, but that was literally the narrative at the time. Uh-huh. No, I absolutely. I remember God, I forget what the big shooting of the year 2016 was. Was that that um that one in Florida? Um that big uh Pulse. Pulse. Well, there was Pulse, yes, and there was the the school one though, because more people cared about the school. Uh, than Stoneman, Pulse. Stoneman Douglas. Yes, that high school. Um, Pulse, like, Pulse hurts, and Pulse was like an obvious of like, oh, this person had this agenda and like was doing this. So obviously, that does not get reported. Like with the with the high school one, it was like much easier to like romanticize and kind of mythicize. Um, to be like, look, if we had more mental health care. And so, like, I remember the specific reform that a lot of people were advocating for was, like, yeah, for students who are, like, getting mental health, whatever, who have these mental health flags for, let's say, schizophrenia, um, there should actually be, like, police officers observing their case file. It's like, y'all are calling for police surveillance of the mentally ill as your reform. Like, that is the pro- that was the progressive position of the 2016 election. So like when people say like, Oh, whether or not Clinton had, like if it had gone a different way, like it's not like that was going to be regardless of who won the 2016 election, it was going to mark a huge acceleration in like the development of a fascist authoritarian, like structure in the United States. Like it was going to be an acceleration of that regardless, whether it was the progressive version of that or the like, whatever we want to call like the Trump version of that, it was going to happen because it was just easier to like scapegoat so-called, you know, the mentally ill schizophrenics who, you know, if you're like interested in that as like a statistical level, it's way more likely that a schizophrenic, like a person who struggles with the symptoms of schizophrenia is going to be attacked by a so-called neurotypical person than the other way around. But that's not even relevant to the fact that like they were trying to distract from Again, like the common denominator was not like schizophrenia, it was not alienation, it was not any of these things. It was direct engagement with like these white nationalist forums like Stormfront, the Daily Stormer, 8chan, like people like how can we consider these lone wolves Reddit. when it's and Reddit, absolutely. Reddit are the Donald, etc. Like they're coordinated, they're active. And what we see is that like not only are they active, but there's this what the United States calls counterinsurgency is fascinating, you know, of like, ah, if we educate, train, arm, and like plan attacks on the behalf of right-wing terror groups, um, that is counterinsurgency as long as we can then cut ourselves a fat check for doing so later. So like a lot of the times, like what you'll find is that like, literal FBI agents had been on like stings creating accounts on the daily stormer, like egging these kids on, like literally DMing like these teenagers who would then go on to like shoot up these high schools. And it's like, wait, there's no repercussion for that because it is part of like, it's not a lone wolf attack. It is a new strategy of like helter skelter violence. Yeah. Yeah. And like, um, to go back to like, some of the stuff predating Gamergate, like a huge one was um, the Elliot Rogers shooting. And he, you know, that happened, that happened before Gamergate in 2014. And, you know, he was uh, a 4chan and like Reddit Manosphere type. And I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where it's, it's like, 
it was clear like that this stuff was coming if you were watching the right spaces yeah yeah and that i guess speaks to like an aspect of the left that has maybe in the united states at least is finally starting to maybe take some strides of just like actually paying attention to like what are fascists doing where are where is this organization happening what is the recruitment pattern like um because in a lot of ways like with the united states like again speaking about like coming back to like this idea of like what is like a leftist politic where do i come into this um a lot of my current engagement stems really from like the reaction to the 2016 election which was a huge surge in like uh self-proclaimed antifa anti-fascist like demonstrations um which were part of really a campaign to be like, actually, we need to be no platform or like deplatforming these fascists. Like at that time, it was very easy, very profitable for a range of the speakers. You know, Milo Yiannopoulos, um, who else was big at that time? Alex Jones was kind of big. Ben Shapiro, who recently spoke in Boston. That was a debacle. That was really quite a delight. Um, I guess all, yeah, it's, history repeats uh, over and over again. So like recently, I'll just share this story kind of unprompted. Ben Shapiro came to speak in uh, the city of Boston at the wonderful Boston University, alma mater of Martin Luther King Jr., alma mater, or no, um, alma mater of MLK Jr., Evie Weissel is a lecturer, and Professor Emeritus, uh, et cetera, et cetera, all these progressive whatevers. But like a university is a university. A private university is a private university. A private university uh, where like half of the streets are named after like literal slave traders um, is a private university where like half of the streets are named after literal slave traders. So Ben Shapiro was invited by a student group to give a speech on campus basically denying the economic importance of slavery to like, the establishment of the United States. And so several student groups from Boston University where uh, I guess I'm a recent dropout of, that's another conversation that can be had, like what is the role of an art school? Um, but as a, I was involved, I guess, in some of the organizing efforts of like, one being like, can we cancel this event? Two, can this event be interrupted? Um, and so what happened was like from the time that this speaking engagement was announced, very quickly, um, certain segments of whatever the usual activists like uh, the activists like usuals, I guess. So especially the BDS movement on campus, the whatever anti-apartheid group was very vocal, just saying like this is a really, really like toxic zionist speaker coming to speak like here's some of these other ways um and that mobilized a, a decent number of people um and then what came out was like the topic of the speech was announced and that was the topic of the speech was that america was built on freedom not slavery and i think it's like both obviously which is like fun to explore as a piece of poetry um but that incensed a larger population of the student body um so a group that called themselves Black at the View, um, who were formed, I guess, out of an assembly of like Black students at Boston University, came together to organize a counter-protest. Um, but that was, I mean, it was just an interesting example of what happens when like liberal organizations that don't have this basis in like what is, like what actually is fascism, what are its strategies, 
try to engage in this because um, their strategy was to stage a silent protest. Um, so there was a noise demonstration and then next to it was a silent protest that was basically acting as like a second line of police almost to like block people from disrupting the event, try and like prevent disruptions, etc. Um, and so it led to this like series of really embarrassing moments of like different protesting groups like bickering at each other or trying to like silence each other. Meanwhile, the event's like going as usual. And the follow-up of this was for this like largest group, Black at BU, was to invite the like the fascist group that had invited Ben Shapiro. They invited them to a debate on whether or not this is okay. Um, and just a moment where it's like, y'all have not been paying attention. Y'all either have not been paying attention for the last four years of like what debating fascism ends up doing, um, or else you know, which I think is more likely you know, and you just see it as an opportunity. Um, so that's a situation of like political education and agitation is a constant, constant struggle. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you're, if we're, uh... Like, if we're debating fascists, like, we've already lost, like, that's exactly what they want, basically. Especially if it's, you know, in those sort of liberal conceptions of, like, free speech or something, that's, that's entirely their strategy. So, and, you, you know, you see liberals fall and fall for it just constantly. Yeah, I mean, you do, and there's, like, a reason for that, I guess, and that's been a useful part of the last few years of political education, I guess, was, like, I don't know, there's an old saying that goes, like, if you scratch a liberal, a fascist bleeds, of just saying, like, both of those political positions are based in protecting capitalism in some way, whether that's by making it appear friendly enough to allow it to continue to live, um, or by making it formidable enough that it cannot be killed, like, either of those positions are related, and neither of those are, neither, like, now those are radical in a way. So it's like part of that thing of like when we talk about like what is the left, what does it mean to be on the left or to be a leftist? A lot of the times I shy away from that term because it starts to include uh, I don't know, in my view, a lot of a lot of groups, a lot of politicians, a lot of um, very opportunistic groups that actually want reform or if reform even barely that. Or they just want Medicare for all. It's their only, no. it's their only demand. Right, like, Medicare for all. Like, the thing that was, like, not even that radical in, like, what, 2008? It's like, we're actually still at that, like... It just speaks to, like, that... Yeah, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying there are people who... If, it's, if that's your only interest, that is, that is not good. Right, right. Like, if that's the only interest, it's just, like, give us... A bigger slice of the pie you know the as long as pie. that the imperial pie specifically right like no matter who it is like it's still the sausage is made somehow it is absolutely exploitation violence war invasion imperialism and that's another thing is like we can't even i guess that's the importance of like to speak on the marxist poetry podcast of like bringing back this aspect is like when we try to erase the role of Marxism as just literally a branch of sociology dedicated to like the study of capitalism and its fruits and its opposition. Like when you erase that, you lose any ability to like ground yourself in the world. 
So like at Boston University, I was part of the School of Theater, which is like a very, very elitist position. It was something that I pursued from a very asinine place of like I was, you know, okay, so we speak about poetry, right? Like how do we come to poetry? Um, There's not like a poetry scene to speak of in Phoenix, Arizona. There is, there's a lot of poets. Um, And there's one poetry slam and there's one publisher of poetry. But it's not, like, Phoenix, Arizona is nobody's idea of cultural capital. Seven million people there, you would not guess it by the amount that most people know about the city. Um, So it's like, what is this? Like, what is this to be on, like, a cultural margin in that sense? So in the most asinine way, I was like, I have a modicum of talent. I'm willing to take out any amount of debt or step on anybody to go through this, like, conservatory pathway to try and engage in, like, theater as something and through theater i was engaging with you know brecht and like uh god at the time um arthur miller of like what does it mean to criticize fascism and a lot of them did it hugely inadequate ways but as part of this like uh conservatory style study it was very engaged with like what are the progressive elements of this genre so like boston university brands itself because it is a brand, it's just a hedge fund, but it brands itself as a very progressive institution. So it's like, what are the progressive origins of this? So it's like, how can we read these? We're going to read these plays by Amiri Baraka, Langston Hughes, W.E.B. Du Bois, du Bois um, but we're going to completely, completely erase the aspect of their work, which is explicitly rooted in like Marxist organizing and organizing with Marxist organizations. We're going to try and study... I mean, so many of these authors, it's like, but actually we're going to pretend that they were straight and capitalists. And it's like, that's not actually the case. Um, I forget even where I was necessarily going with this. Um, Marxism as a topic of study um, of just like, you need that grounding in like, what are the histories? What are the patterns? What are we actually looking at? Because otherwise we just get lost. We start arguing about things that are not. Yeah, you end up arguing about free speech without well you are you end up arguing with free speech without a kind of marxist understanding of the world or at least without some kind of awareness of you know anti without some kind of anti-capitalist analysis you end up you know you end up that's why the you know, that's why the liberals end up siding with the fascists it's it's capitalism capitalism baby there's money to be made you know always uh some possibility of reform to get you know a bigger slice of the imperialist pie if we don't concern ourselves with like how that's made it's like what are we doing um and so that becomes like part of the very real i guess contradictions that we're finding like poetry as like this genre is starting to like expand and take off really in a way that like i don't know in my living memory it seems to be quite like business is booming with like relative to like how much money there has ever been in poetry, which is I don't think ever been that much. Um, so it's always kind of shocking to see like the asinine and greedy aspects of society coming to it. Of like, you need this too. Well, let me ask you this: like, uh, like for you, why why poetry? Why do you why are you choosing to write poetry? Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely started because I had a very short attention span, and so a novel was much much too difficult. Um, but like what continued and what proceeded and why I kept like staying with it was like this connection to 
like a voice, like an actual voice as it speaks and the way we actually like read and hear an idea in our head. Um, and then what has kept me coming back and kept me coming back, kept me coming back has been one, I guess mainly just like ease of access. Like I tend to find like it's the lowest barrier. Like it was easy for me to get into and correspondingly it has been easy for me to get others into it. Um, in high school, I organized an open mic at my school and it was always fantastic to hear you know, new poems by people who did not consider themselves artists at all. Um, just because it gives you a degree of power of like self-determination, literally just defining, this is my language. This is how I sound. This is what I express. And like, as we gradually break down this like limitation of like poetry is supposed to sound like, you know, William Wadsworth Longfellow, like it's a self creation that I think is really beautiful and actually like very powerful and i guess the more i go down this road the more i realize there is actually a long tradition of just the use of this of narrative and rhythm and rhyme to i don't know what it exactly is it's many things i guess it's so many different applications of this one tool of like language and maybe that's the thing that like marxism has taught me about poetry or that maybe poetry is talking about Marxism, but is that like language is a tool. Like it is one of many tools that humans have access to. And in the same way that I can apply um, a stovetop as a tool or a knife as equally a weapon and an implement for creation, like the same thing can happen with words. So like poetry is not, ah oh god to join in the proud tradition of this uh show of like dunking on Ilya kaminsky of like is poetry often on the side of power like if we look at history actually like generally speaking it is poetry generally is on the side of power or even that poetry is a source of power um and so like the utilization of that has been very exciting in my life um as a poet i'm very much so a product of a few spaces that i guess would be fun to name right now um yeah go for it. Where I started like writing um to speak about being a gamer um so back in those like halcyon days of like 2010 ish um i was very into this trading card game called magic the gathering salvation there was a very popular internet forum dedicated to this trading card game called magic the gathering salvation there was like a sub forum of a sub forum of a sub forum dedicated to creative writing. And on this sub forum, there was uh, a running contest of just people would post a poem every week and people would vote on which one they liked best. Um, I just hung out there. I like posted mad poems there for like a year and a half. I was a moderator for almost a year, just like running the contest. Um, and then later I organized an open mic. And then like for me, really like the like, awakening the like galaxy brain level aspect of it has come in the last few years with an organization called fems um the feminine empowerment movement slam which is based in boston um they had their first like slam tournament a couple of years ago um and so it's interesting that that has been my entryway to like slam as a performance art aspect like i grew up as part of this generation that really grew up with like button poetry button poetry on youtube as like a reference for like what's possible in this genre um like 
So I remember watching, or I was listening to your episode with Kevin Lattimore earlier, uh, where Kevin was talking about like the influence of like Death Jam on this expansion of poetry and like the growth of like slam as a genre. So then in like 2016, 2017, 2018, what happened kind of was this like collapse where like kind of the bottom fell out under a lot of these larger organizations. So like the National Poetry Slam and several other orgs kind of went through this period of like chaos and destabilization that I don't fully understand, but very much so related to like racial antagonisms and antagonisms about like the distribution of labor in these organizations that were not really like very obvious, you know? So like you'll now catch like these jokes where, you know, button poetry will have like 2 million subscribers. And so they have this like, whatever, these mixtapes on Spotify, they'll get like these millions of plays. And then you'll get a poet like um, Melissa Lozara Olivet, who is like, uh, I haven't gotten paid for any of that. So, and so that's another frame of like, oh, how is this, like, how does the mode of production affect like cultural work? Because I think that's not something that's very like in the present frame where like we're thinking about like, like we can try to analyze like, oh, this movie, this poem, this book, like whatever. But if we miss like who is making it and how, we're missing a lot about them. So for me coming in through FEMS, FEMS was like taking as the point of ethos of like, how can we be like as good to each other as possible? Um, it's not an organization which is explicitly Marxist. I don't think that's something that I would project onto that org at all. Um, but I would say the organization like tries to center values that are like anti-capitalist in the sense that like capitalism is also a system of social relations. So if we introduce new social relations or like shifted social relations or revive social relations, which are more generous, more healing, which are not centered on commodities, which are centered on people, growth, healing, like value systems, which are outside of like literal hierarchy of like white capitalist settler patriarchy, like if we name those and aspire to values outside of those, what can we create of ourselves? Like that is the space that I was first practicing like performance poetry in. Um, and that is really what has like helped me to like nurture my voice along where before I was in this femmes space, I was not really like for one, I was too young to engage in slam poetry because most of these slams are like 21 plus. So that's only the last like, Two years have I been able to engage in um but on the other hand it was like no this is a space where like these things can coexist this like need for gentleness for femininity for like inclusive spaces for gender diversity for racial diversity for like religious diversity like these things can actually exist and be like not just superficial values which are commodified for marketing brochures are used to promote rainbow capitalism um Though I think there's always the danger of like lapsing into that, but like it was, I don't know, just kind of this, it's been this incredibly nurturing space for that aspect of my voice um, and just helped me to be able to like step away from feeling like I am either a performance poet who writes like slam poems, which are designed to just commodify trauma and get that 10 every time, um, while also not falling into this route of like, feeling like I have to be like a very workshop driven poem poet with like a very 
Like, I do think I'm a, a pretty formalist poet. Like, I love form. I think it's rewarding and fun. But I think there's a way where it can go a little too far and just not feel human. Well, I meant to ask you this earlier. Um, like, how? So, what is a burning high bond, and like, how did you come across that form for like to maybe as a way to talk about forms some more? Yeah. So, a burning high bond is something I mentioned earlier. There are two of them in my chapbook, When Phoenix Flooded. Um, so, the like simplest way to put it is that there is like a uh, a paragraph of prose, um, a prose poem, if you will. And then you make an erasure of that. So you cut out, you know, as many words as you want. And then you get a second prose poem of an erasure. And then you take that second erased prose poem, you erase it again, and you get a haiku. Um, so that's a burning high bun as opposed to a regular high bun, which is like uh, a prose poem and then a haiku afterwards. Um, and so I was introduced to this form by um, Torin A. Greathouse. Um, who I think literally today put out a broadside with Radical Paper Press. Um, but Torin's work, um, Torin's work I was introduced to also through Femmes. A lot of like, here's my, yeah, a lot of the trans authors I was aware of prior to the last like three months of knowing about like the Trans Writers series and other like initiatives that are now happening in the anti-press movement. A lot of the trans authors who I was aware of were directly through femmes. So the first burning high bun I encountered was written by a poet named Ilias Evander, who is a Providence, Rhode Island-based poet who has done a lot of work in slam and education. Um, and Ilias is just dope. Ilias put me onto the idea that there could be like something outside of any sort of institutional sense of poetry. Like Ilias, when I met them, was like. I have never been to college. I do this shit myself. I teach these workshops. I print my own zines. It's like whatever. Um, and so Ilias had performed Burning High Bun at some event. Um, and then later I was at a FEMS event and I got to see Torin Greathouse uh, read a couple of her Burning High Buns. Um, and I was just like, this is fun. Like I like form. Erasures are interesting. I love haikus. Or haiku. That's the plural of haiku. Um, just because, again, like I said, I started writing poetry because it was, like, so easy. I was like, you're telling me there's only, like, 14 words in this poem? I don't know. I had some class probably in middle school where I needed to write some sort of a poem. And so the easiest way to complete that requirement was to, like, write a haiku or to write, like, five haiku. Um, so Burning High Bun has been, like, an evolution of that in a way. But there's something, like, I think it's been so like a lot of like trans writers and specifically the trans women I know or the trans feminine people I know have really gravitated towards like the burning high bun. And there's a few reasons for that. Like my intuition about it is that it's like the way you can take something and erase parts of it. It just vibes with something about being trans, having dead names, having bodies and pasts that we're like trying to put behind, especially I don't know, masculinity, which can be so associated with violence specifically. So like being able to burn something feels satisfying, feels tactile. Um, so the two that appear then in my chat book, When Phoenix Flooded, um, the, first one, the first one was um, the recycling plant by the river is on fire again, um, which is 
just about a literal like true event which was just i lived near a recycling plant in south phoenix that was like always catching fire because that's what these recycling plants do like we send all this compost all of this like recycling and you just like create mounds of it and it's like hella wiring and like precious metals and like electronics that are super super reactive takes very little to get them going and there's a ton of fuel so they just will burn for days sometimes um so those two things of like a literal fire and like a poem that burns down felt related and so that poem being about like the degradation of the environment that felt relevant um salt river is the river in question salt river is like a river in name only it's one man-made and two like water does not flow through it 99 percent of the time um so it just had this like almost surrealism that i felt lent itself to an erasure of just like you start with one thing and then it erases and suddenly you're looking at something different and then it erases and you're looking at something else and they're all the thing i guess the second one in that collection um was called a light um which is about i guess another true story of just like going to get myself a slice of pizza at the costco food court near where i was living at the time um and just like giving somebody a trans woman who's asking for money um, i think i gave her like five bucks but i was like that's all i got and i was like i know it's not all i got i just can't afford to give you more that sucks um so that the use of burning highbone in that case i think i had just decided i wanted to write one and just wrote one um form is form is interesting i don't know are you like anti-formalism are you very into like very formal poems like how do you feel about rhyme schemes yeah personally i don't do very much formal stuff but like i'm like opposed to it i just that's just not how i write i guess yeah i mean that's legitimate yo um i definitely have a couple of sonnets in this collection which i kind of look at them and like i'm partly in love with them and i'm partly like why the hell would you write a sonnet um and the answer to that is like i truly i mean i don't know uh some of that is like <laughs> i do have like i forget who said it but i remember reading some joke somebody made about like anarchists being like anti-capitalist with conservative memories so like that one kind of like stung me because i did come from a very reactionary conservative place as a young like a young young person like i said i was like very on 4chan before i was processing other things like i grew up in arizona like positively surrounded by like right-wing libertarians um to the point where like now the rise of like the bitcoin set is just hilarious to me um oh i love the bitcoin going, people oh it's delightful like i truly like and that's the other set of like right of like again like marxist and like non-marxist critiques of capitalism being lacking so it's like we're gonna have bitcoin and we're gonna have like a universal basic income and we're gonna be able to like use algorithms and automation to like abolish this economy it's like that's not how it works on me um but it really yeah, I'm surprised is like, andrew yang didn't off didn't um, do his universal basic income in bitcoin that would he would he would be president if he'd done that really think so you know there's oh, no. said, uh, like <laughs> running joke. for office of presidency on the basis of, like undermining the currency of your own nation like i think that'd be pretty hardcore the u.s would go for it like andrew jackson like killed it at the polls so like honestly do it um yeah like this right right libertarianism fascinates me increasingly as we reach this point where the thing that i wonder about i guess is like the capacity of 
capitalism to like abolish the state. So like there's really strong movements of like the so-called like anarcho-capitalists right now or just like anarchists who are not explicitly anti-capitalist um producing a lot of just strange ideas um the discourse around hong kong is just bizarre like just bizarre i'm not even sure what to make of it but it feels related somehow to the way it happens everywhere yeah yeah and there's a weird like sci-fi futurist edge to a lot of that right libertarian bitcoin space like a sort of like you said abolishing the state but so we can have more capitalism instead of the state like i remember a few years ago like there were those bitcoin people talking about doing seasteading which is like oh we're gonna build um floating homes in international waters to mine bitcoin which is just you know just some incredible beautiful create the like aquatic country and that's another like so funny of like i remember when that was announced it was like mad people being like wait is this 1984 funny ways where it's like 1984 like claims to be this like novel is like this is what communism is like and it's like how are you just going to describe like what capitalism is actually doing and then say that that's like it's the most like basic level of straw man gaslighting of like here is this thing that me and the people i am associated with are doing you see our enemies actually they are the ones responsible like, it's the easiest grift, and it goes so well so many times, and it's just yeah. disappointing to watch. Oh, there's a podcast called Trash, Trash Future, which, like, makes fun of all the, uh, like, Silicon Valley startup-type things. And one of their, um, like, main theses of that podcast is basically, like, all the, sh- all the stuff they complained about with the Soviet Union is, like, just now the present. So, like, oh, you have to share a toothbrush. Now, like... Yeah, but now you have like sharing economy apps for everything and you you get like toothbrush tokens if you like economize your toothbrush time right or something. It's just it's just wild. <laughs> right, right. But like literally, like, oh my god, in the socialist future, all of our cities will be identical gray steel and concrete like slabs. And it's like go look at the new downtown of any city. It is the same yeah, they just, slab. They're just we were. They're just we work buildings with cucumber water. That we were. We were. They were right, except for the cucumber water. That is so funny. But like they were right. Yeah, it's we work buildings, but with coconut water, with cucumber water, coconut water. It does I've never not. been in one. No, I, I do. <laughs> you know what? I actually was in a we work building either last night or two nights ago um, for a rehearsal for a reading of a play. Um, which is just interesting, but like the building is like literally, it feels so dystopian, like incredibly science fictional. Like I walk in, and so there's the first level of security, security just to get in the door because in Boston there's a WeWork building across the street from South Station, which is like the largest bus terminal slash train terminal in the city. Um, so like the building itself, you have to go through one level of security just to get through the door, um, and then there's a lobby like with a guard. Um, and like turnstiles, you have to like sign in, get approval to go up. And then the part that for me was a trip is the elevators. Like it's not just like you call an elevator. Once you're in the elevator, you like hit the floor. You call the elevator to a specific floor, which means that like to get to certain floors, you have to have a certain access, which is like a common feature of buildings, like a key. But it's just weird to like queue in like, oh, I'm going to the third floor, hit three, wait for the elevator to come down. 
The elevator is already programmed with its destination. Like if I step on, there's no floor buttons in the elevator. You cannot adjust that from there. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? I have no idea. Yeah. Well, as a, as another leftist podcast would ask, well, there's your problem. Um, yeah, but so I guess I like, I wanted to talk to you too about like, like one of your poems where you have a lot of like futurism in it is, um, if all patterns remain constant and I start buying, wait, hold on. If all patterns remain consistent and I start buying money to buy a home, like, um, I guess like, yeah. And like you, you do a lot of imagining there, like with debt and like a lot of like all this like stuff we were just making fun of, it's all structured around debt essentially. Yeah. Basically debt as a concept is, I guess really important to, I mean, I guess it's vital to all aspects of my life. Like, what is debt? Like, where are we at? Like, how is that framed? Like, I mean, as a student, I have a really preposterous amount of debt. Um, we just, like, that's how it goes. Um, but yes, that poem specifically. What's funny is that, like, just because of the way I was, like, finishing that draft, um, the title is actually, like, I guess incorrect in a way of, like, I meant for it to be if I start saving money to buy a house. Um, but it came out to be if I start buying money today, like it's the same thing. Um, Cause that's what a loan is, right? You buy money. Um, but yeah, in that poem, I utilize the future as a way of saying like, if these projections come true, like this will happen. So like that was based on a couple of works of, to be honest, like speculative fiction. So one of those was like a New York Times article that was saying, like if you started saving X percent of your income, assuming you made the medium wage, which nobody does, but assuming you made the medium wage and you started saving X percentage of your income today, how long would it take you to pay a down payment in these American cities? And the estimates were like incredibly dystopian. The estimates that are written in that poem are the ones I got from that article. So it's saying it'd be like 50 or 60 years to buy a house in like, not even to buy a house, to like start the process of paying for a home. Um, in like San Francisco, it would take like 45 years. To do that in Boston, it would take like 50 years. It's like, this is hysterical. I was like, how can you possibly see that and not compare it against the timeline of like those cities flooding? So that's the other thing that happens in that poem is basically most of it is like a juxtaposition of those two timelines of like, imagining that somehow the money economy proceeds completely as normal like no changes as it has always done just constant linear growth no disasters like big money no whammies um if that somehow remains true with what we know about the climate um coming true it's like what would the most conservative estimate of this be? um and then i guess my poet's aspect of like what if other patterns remain consistent like what if i never resolved any of these avoidant behaviors what if i never just like fucking called my brother you know shit like that um so i think like i'm glad you brought that poem up because one it's like i think my favorite poem from that collection um it's my favorite to read like to read at readings um i think it's like just the most unsettling of like actually the way things are going the patterns as they are now do not have to remain consistent like they actually cannot remain consistent so it's just admitting like the future will not be what we are saying it is, which is the opposite of debt. Like debt is a prescription for the future. Like this commodity will develop in this way, but it's, it's imaginatory. It's like a hallucination of a weapon. Like debt 
this blew my mind. I finally checked. I was like, how much debt is there in the world versus like how much money is there? And like, you can look this up pretty easily. Like economists have calculated it. And basically there's like four times the amount of money owed versus the money existing in the world. Um, which is just like, that's the entire basis of growth currently in like any global economy, like in the global economy is constant growth. And the only basis right now is one developments made on the basis of loans and two, the collection of interest from those loans, but it's all just like different buyers and sellers trading the same bundles of debt, but there's no money to back the debt. Like it's an extension beyond like when fiat currency was introduced as opposed to just like the gold standard it's like wait there's more money than gold like how can this possibly function now there's like another level of currency where it's like there are there's like currency or there's like the gdp that is said to influence the currency and then there is like the debt that that currency is supposed to feed and they don't line up and they're like drifting apart at an exponential level yeah well that's like um People say that the government prints money, but it money is actually mostly created by banks when they do fractional reserve lending. So banks never have as much money as they lend out, and that's why there's more debt. It's yeah, it's that's it's not, and of course that only works the way it does now because the government issues uh, basically, you know, the FDIC insurance, where um, you know if if the bank goes under, you the lend the person loaning the money still gets their money. So, you know, banks never have as much money as they lend out. So, what that means is the government, like this, this whole structure is just like you know, it is a pyramid scheme at the end of the day, basically. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's a tool of like truly of empire, like to bring it back to like the scheme of like. What are the possible reforms of it? Oh, Medicare for all, universal basic income, like whatever those are. Ultimately, it's based on like a different distribution of this like imaginary fruit of empire, which is really just like we're all going to agree to participate in this specific economy of debt. Yeah. And I guess like so to to go back to that poem, like like one of the ways, you know, I think liberals often do this and a lot of. Like react like Elon Musk is someone who I, who does this, like the imaginings of the future where, like, there's no, like, it's just like the future they imagine just is like a radical break with the present almost, and there's no, there's no lingering effects of the of the present or the past and in, in the futures that get imagined. But like in the poem we were just talking about, you know, you you're constantly thinking about the present and in the past and all the stuff that you would you know again, the current trends, if they continue, all the stuff, all the baggage and whatnot that gets brought into the, the present. And I guess for me, like that's, uh, I think, perhaps a, a very Marxist way of thinking about the future, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree um, of just like approaching the future from a place of like, yeah, because it's, I mean, it's rooted in like, what are dialectics? You know what I mean? Like, what does it mean to be like, Aspirate of the present creates the future, um, which is a simplification of dialectics, um, but that's necessary, I think. Um, but it really, like, it's truly, like, I think I would agree that that's, like, a Marxist poetic. And I think it is an example of, like, the application of poetics to try to challenge the way we think. You know, like, if language, if cliche is the most basic, like, 
formation of like how we understand our actions until we challenge that understanding like the rest is not possible like it's not like without the imaginative step the the active step is like precluded um and i think some of that influence is like specifically i would say like in my own like words would stem from like my readings of like the writings of the EZLN, the Zapatista Assembly, like those communiques, um, credited to Subcomandante, what is it, Galeano and Subcomandante, uh, the other one. Marcos? Marcos, yeah, Marcos was the, the better known, the first one, and then Galeano was the successor, who might be the same person, like, who knows, it might not actually matter. Um, there's, I guess, a reference to that in When Phoenix Flooded, um, of just saying... What is that the greatest dance troupe you'll never see live or the greatest dance you can never see live um i named a character in that poem sub sub comandante emiliana or something like that that poem was just meant to be like ridiculous and inflammatory but like in the way that like these like zapatista communiques like are ridiculous and inflammatory and explicitly marxist when so like especially in the poetry world let's say it's very difficult sometimes to persuade people to actually do that reading and to see these kind of the use of these kind of things when there's so there's so much interest in sort of i guess various mythologies of the self and you know that all that stuff that often happens in in the poetry world rather than you know studying theory let's say Mm -hmm. Like, I just, like, oh, like, this is a good, like, I think I might have, I don't think I mentioned this on the podcast, but I was reading um, Mary Oppen's autobiography, and she quoted um, George Oppen as saying, like, you know, the most, like, basically saying, like, the most important books I've read aren't poetry books, and it, it just seems to me, like, that's, like, in the poetry world right now, that just feels like such a radical statement, even though it really shouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, like, she has a point, um, like, for myself, it has been, like, Poets have pushed my political education in a way that, like, is remarkable. Um, just to name, like, like, it's actually remarkable how much political education you can get just from poets and just from poetry, which just speaks to, like, how broad that category actually is. Um, so I think that's important. I think that's something that I actually am trying to push. Like, I think I see people, like, pushing those spaces to exist. And now I'm like, how can we apply that? tactically of like poetry as a tool for political education um where like i mean if we're looking at like if we're considering ourselves marxists like who are the marxist thinkers the marxist authors the marxist revolutionaries that we're studying like was like ho chi Minh was a poet you know like we're studying poets like it was often like poets and writers who were like starting to frame these things in a way that like actually moved it's not like one moved in front of the other or whatever. That's a whole other study of like what moves a movement. Is it the ideas or the movement itself? Like that's a different conversation, but like we need poets to push this and to antagonize this. So like, yes, the movement to just like try to make the most lucrative trauma porn possible, you know, mythologize the self, like pimp your trauma, try to like flip it for like a fat buck. Yeah, it's very popular, but also like any commodity form tends to be quite fleeting of just the sense of like genres, aesthetics, like 
capitalism needs to replace them at a very fast pace. Um, so it's like, what is it producing next? One of the strategies that I think has been very well employed in some aspects of like popular music and hip hop has been like trying to like push other ideas, other frameworks into like the popular mediums. Um, another like just tried and true strategy has just been like poets writing like dead honest like criticisms of the system. So like whether that's like Bertolt Brecht, um, his whole like career, honestly, or much more recent poets, like, um, for example, Audre Lorde right now is like, in terms of like US centered activism, thinking, agitation, strategizing is like, really a touchstone for a lot of people. It's like, a lot of her work is primarily poetry, but it gives you a lot about how to conceptualize problems, how to conceptualize the self, how to approach the discipline of like attitude and mind that can lead to like a revolutionary formation. For myself, a lot of the like authors that like pushed me in a direction were like um, Vanessa Jimenez Gab, who has this book of poetry, Images for Radical Politics, which is exactly what it says on the tin. Like it's a series of poems that present images that like inspire or somehow deepen this like contradiction of like radical politics. Like two poems from that collection, like stick with me. One of them, I forget the title of it, but basically it was like her narrating like a robbery that happened in the neighborhood. And so like it's narrated in like three parts of like one is like, oh, the break in and things being stolen. And the second is like people reacting to this of like, oh, what did they take? Where did they go? How can we catch them? And the third was like the poet's flip of that, which is like, hi, who are you? What did you take? What did you need when you took this? Um, of just like a way of reframing like how we view property, how we view carcerality. And for me, it was able to do that without having to give me 500 pages of like other political notations, which are important, but are not a great entry. Another poet who I think really does a fantastic job of antagonizing this was like Diane de Prima, um, who had this wonderful collection, Letters for Radical Letters, um, which Revolutionary is like... Letters. Revolutionary letters, thank you. Um, are you familiar? I think, like, you sound familiar? Uh, yeah, I have, well, long long ago, that was a text that was readily available on the internet, and then City, then recently City Lights has decided to uh, reissue it, so now you can't find it online. But yeah, I, I've read it. <laughs> long, long story short, yes, um, I, I've read it. That's sad that it's now harder to find. Um, but yeah, that collection is like, one fabulous of just like a lot of really literal passages of just like here's how you would make a bomb here's how you would establish uh like a hideout here's how you might prepare yourself to like leave here's how you might ascertain who your allies are but then also on the more imaginative aspect of like here's like the better life that's possible and then also one that stuck with me stuck with me which was saying like okay on in the united states specifically like on the coasts there's already really like, yes, people are very politically active in the so-called, like, coastal centers. Like, there's really strong aspects of the explicitly, like, revolutionary anti-capitalist movement centered in California and New York specifically. But in this poem, she's just saying, like, and what about, like, the middle? What about everything in between? Like, once, like, once people living in the middle start to have, start to move, start to create our own formations, that's when the threat becomes real. And for me, in a way, like, this year has, well, the last, like, six years, honestly, have been, like, a series of progressions of this. So, like, 
the movement for black lives um, in the sense that it was like started as like an insurrection, like a rolling insurrection, the largest, longest in the history of the United States, like started in what Ferguson, Missouri, St. Louis, like and expanded out. So that was like centered in like the center of the country. And now we're seeing to speak about poetry specifically, like this crop of like specifically, for example, God, there's several poets from Ohio right now who's really doing the thing. Um, like Brennan Joyce is like doing the thing. Um, where's Paint Bucket based out of? Or the creators that based out of Ohio or Pennsylvania? Uh, the, well, the James runs in. He lives in LA, I think, still with the uh, with me right now. <laughs> oh, word. Okay, interesting. Well, that's cool. Like, not like digitality is sick. I had definitely associated that very strongly with like a lot of Midwest-based artists. Um, yeah, you're right. There sound- is a lot happening. Okay, word. I was just asking if like, that, that sounded like a valid assessment. Like, There's a lot active in like the Midwest specifically. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of people active in the, in the Midwest for sure. Yeah, poetry. Hell yeah. Well, I, I wanted to like mention too, like, um, like you've, like, we've kind of like flirted around this like Breck quote to me. It's like, he has the the fame. One of his famous quotes is, um, "Art isn't a mirror for reality; it's a hammer to shape reality with." And I guess like um, uh, who like you you were just listing some poets, but like you feel like are there any other poets I think that are doing that for you? I guess. Um, who is really doing that? Like with like a hammer's precision. Um, I think the first one that comes to mind is. Um, um, who's in an interesting position as the poet laureate of the city of Boston, which is like a very tricky balance of like being very near to a position of power, but also like the content of the poems, hard as fuck. Um, other poets who I think are really, really effectively just like hitting the thing every single time you read some stuff. Um, God, Tongo Eisen Martin, I think is his full name. Um, published, I think, a couple of things with, like, Commune Mag or Viewpoints, um, but had this one poem that was, like, basically had this line, like, if money hires genius, then genius is smarter, or if money hires genius, then money is smarter than genius. That just stuck with me as, like, that's using, like, just an idiom to, like, reframe an idea of value. Um, I think, like, some other poets, like, I've mentioned this, like, uh brendan joyce has like yeah just like some incredibly raw poems um once that's another thing is like there's so many people who are working as artists as well as working in the service industry um and once that like starts to become a yes and situation suddenly like the actual power of this movement will be realized for so long it's so much of this framework of like no 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 we're not waiters we're temporarily embarrassed billionaire painters or musicians like no we are like waiters and it's like yes we have these skills of like classically trained actors and like musicians and like composers filmmakers but the way our economy is set up like that's all that's possible um back to the topic of like who is really really criticizing this goddamn thing um uh um I have found uh I don't know about like as a hammer um but some poets for me that have really been effective at like advancing issues of like 
specifically like related to like cause of indigeneity and indigenous life um natalie diaz has some like fabulous poems that are like this is the state of like water rights in the southwest or like this is like how fucking like this is what the deal with like blood quantum laws are this is what the deal with like uranium mining is and like there is such a need for that of like political education in like a form as accessible as a four page poem or whatever um other poets who do that are like uh wendy trevino um or oh my god um let me hold on i have a book in my hand i'm checking it to make sure i get the same correct Laylee long soldier is the one writer who i wish more people would read um period Laylee long soldier uh this is her bio from a book published by Grey Wolf Press, which is like Grey Wolf Press ever. Um, but Lady Long Soldier, fabulous. Her poem, Whereas, 38 and Whereas. It's like, if you want to understand what the nature of this country as a weapon formed against the indigenous population of this continent, you know, like, that's who you need to be. Um, ah, so those are poets who I think are working as like, a hammer right now um trying to think if there's in terms of like because i don't know i've talked about theater a little bit like you mentioned brecht um and i mentioned that i have some like training in theater i will say like right now it there is either an embarrassing lack or more likely an incredibly successful like vanishing of like really effective critics of capitalism from like what is possible in theater um except on the smallest stages um so that's something where like performance art cannot really be thought of as like a national engagement anymore which is just like fine like the way we thought about that as something you know the way we thought about uh the american realists in the 50s and brecht in the 30s and etc whatever company like literally the nation states that produce those works the like economies those don't exist anymore so what we thought of as theater can't exist either um those are my recommendations um <laughs> yeah, was, yeah um like those are some good ones um is there anything else you want you wanted to talk about um is there anything else i'd like to talk um before we bounce um just a brief shout out to like the self-publishing movement um, of just like set up a printer, print the zine, do the thing. It's been the model for like 30 years. It works. Um, oh, the only other thing I would love to like shout out is the study group I'm part of, which is just like they call themselves like the Autonomous University of Political Education. Um, and it literally is just like a very well organized like group chat, basically like meet once a week over uh, a video call um, just to like share some reflections and presentations on uh, a Marxist author every week. Um, so that has been actually very helpful in terms of going from a place of like reading like Lenin or Mao like by myself or whatever, or reading like Fred Hampton's biography. Another thing I'd love to shout out, like yo, anybody read like Revolutionary Suicide by Fred Hampton soledad brother by george jackson um but like reading theory in groups has been so helpful um 
especially for learning how to try and talk about this with people who are coming at this from a more liberal framework. Um, just because like the questions help us resolve these things. Like people are drawn to different things for different reasons. And we need that discussion to like advance these dialectics and to like develop our understanding. Yeah, for sure. Well, th thank you so much for talking. Yeah, um, it's been lovely talking with you. Uh, I feel like I've been very serious and like monologue -y, but it's been like fantastic. Um, no, you're good. Thank you so much for this podcast. Um, it's really great to have more resources to like engage with these. Yeah, well, you'll have to come back on and maybe we'll talk more about your poems because I feel like I spent like 30 minutes asking you about 4chan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like sometimes it really is like you just got to talk about 4chan for about 30 minutes before you get to the verse. Um, <laughs> yeah, shouts out. I mean, yeah, um, I'll come on next time. Hopefully I'll have some more poems out. Um, I'm trying to... I've been working on like a very small like zine length collection called like I think I'm gonna call it Twinks for Class War. Um, so I think that'll be a fun topic of conversation of like why are we talking about this? <laughs>